This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, welcome back to Everyday Theology. In this episode, we have a particularly interesting conversation, a topic, one that uh, we've kind of like held off on a little bit, what the book have come out a bit and have some people read it to have a a good conversation. And so Chris, my co-host for the season, has written a book called All Things Beautiful and Aesthetic Christology. Came out a couple months ago. It is really important work that we're going to get into. But then we also have a guest with us who is Father Kenneth Tanner, who is uh, someone who has engaged with the text, uh, someone to bring in to have a good conversation and to introduce him. I'm going to let Chris kind of tell you a little bit more about him. Thank you. Thank you guys for doing this. So I'm I'm trying to remember what year it would have been, but it's been years now when I first heard about father Ken and then found him online. I think I actually, was it Huffington post father Ken? Is that with a piece where I would have read you first? Yeah, perhaps I was doing a lot. So if that's true, that's probably 2012, 2013. Yeah, it's in that area. 14. Yeah, I think probably 2012 is about right. So I, I read a piece really, really impressed with it. And so I, you know, as you do, I Googled his name, found out that he's a, a pastor, Paris priest, priest, and Rochester, Michigan, Holy Redeemer Church, and found videos of him, YouTube, kind of tracked tracked down his Facebook and Twitter. Also known as internet stalking. Yes, internet stalking, exactly. I I committed a number of (laughs) minor faux pas in the process of tracking him down. But then we eventually connected. I think the first time we actually met in person was in New York City at a Praxis conference, I think. That's right. Yeah. And so that years later, I mean, it was probably five, six years yeah. from the time that I kind of had first started tracking what, what he was writing and what he was was speaking. And I just, you know, hit it off. I mean, I, so so yeah. much, I think, similarity felt. We, we, in fact, do have, and Aaron, this will be true for you as well, We we have... A kind of shared history in classical Pentecostalism, uh, a, a similar journey toward the historic liturgical church, the theology of the church fathers, love for the Eucharist, priestly ministry, and so on. So, the we were set up to like each other, I think, and <laughs> we were, yeah. I mean, so many of the same wounds and so many of the same joys, and yeah, it, it has been nothing but refreshing the, the conversations and, and now we've been together in a lot of different settings doing conferences together or one-on-one personal conversation and it's always it's always a joy so when father ken read the book and he read it before i mean it was one of the first few, first few people to look at the the draft of the book he agreed to to help to be a, a copy editor and give me feedback as well so he and I think was the first person to write any kind of review of the book. And it was, as I, I said at the time, it was the review was better than the book itself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I want him, I want him speaking on my behalf uh, for sure. <laughs> well, well thank perfect. you for doing this. Yeah. Thanks uh, so much for being here. My, my privilege. And, and I, it's been a great joy to get to know Chris over the last decade and, 
and uh, you know, I think a, a number of his students, um, both in Cleveland um, and in um, the Bay Area, um, have you know wandered onto my social media as a result of you know our connection. And so I've gotten to be in connection with you know guys like Oliver Brewer and and, and others. Um, it's been a, a great. They've all been a great blessing in my life. Um, I was trying to think if Matt, if, if Moser is he was he a student of yours or, um, but somehow we also have gotten connected, um, and I, I learn a lot from these young people um, that are students of Chris. So. Father Ken, you know, again, thank you for being here. I want to kind of set the stage here for a moment because for for some of our listeners, the idea of a Christology may be a newer idea. It may be something that we need to kind of expound upon. So the first thing I want to do is just have Chris. Uh, Chris, tell us, first off, if you can kind of give like a quick, here's what a Christology is and here's why it matters. But then particularly kind of maybe set a little bit of the contrast of what you mean by when you are doing an aesthetic Christology and why did you feel the need to actually do this as opposed to a classic or a more traditional Christology, like a Logos yeah. Christology. Yeah, and, and and I certainly will do that, have done some of that, and will do it again. The, the plan with this book is the first part of a trilogy, hopefully, in which I will do a biblical Christology and then a dogmatic one, which is closer to what we think of when we think about Christology proper, right? But I wanted to begin otherwise, right? Begin at a different angle. Yeah. And probably when the the idea first came to me, I would have said, I, I would have framed it mostly as a Christological aesthetics. So thinking about beauty through the lens of Christology. And what happened once I kind of sat down to write it out is I realized that I want that to to be implied in what I'm doing, but I'm really working the other way. This is really a book about Jesus informed by my experiences with the arts. Hmm. So it's not a book about the arts shaped by my convictions about Jesus primarily, although I think that's pretty clear that I am doing some of that too. But it's, it is a book about Jesus. It's a book about what these movies, these books, these poems have taught me about who Jesus is and, and what it is, what there is to love about it. And so that's, that's kind of where I am with what the project was right from the beginning. And for those who, again, even maybe just explain kind of this word Christology, a basic definition and oh, yeah, yeah. how, how is doing that, how is kind of defining to some degree, and this may, may not be the right word, but how is defining the person of Christ through beauty or aesthetics different than what we typically do yeah well so like in evangelical circles which are the circles i grew up in holiness pentecostal kind of outlands from evangelical culture you do christology mostly biblically right you're reading biblical texts and drawing conclusions about jesus from those right most of the time you're still assuming theological categories even though you're saying you're not right so most of the people i grew up around would have said they believe that jesus was fully divine and fully human right right that they they affirmed the virgin birth by which they just meant that mary conceived supernaturally yeah they believed in a what they would call a literal resurrection right that jesus rose from the dead as his body these, these were all theological convictions right that were given to me as basic yeah but they were worked through biblical categories like the, even those are those are all dogmatic categories they're doctrinal categories that we get from the creedal tradition we methodologically we didn't accept the creeds as authoritative no, nobody quoted the creed in my my church if they had done so i would have thought it was really catholic right <laughs> but we still held to those basic assumptions about jesus birth and jesus death and jesus resurrection and jesus identity as the divine one we still held to some version of the doctrine of the trinity even though we had no sense at all of why that mattered or how to talk about it yeah but the categories we worked in were always biblical ones right so 
and the mode of theology was mostly preaching and prayer, maybe testimony, but it was, there was not dogmatics, right? There was no concern with the kind of working through what it means for us to say that Jesus is God. In what sense is he one with the Father? What does it mean for him to be filled with the Spirit? And this led to, as you and Aaron, Aaron, you and I have talked about before, this led to a number of kind of incoherencies, like where when we were talking about Jesus' birth and death, we would play up his divinity, right? That it's God born, God dying. But when we were talking about Jesus' life or his ministry, we would play down his divinity and play up his humanity as a way of talking about him as the model, right? So yeah. he's, he shows us what the spirit-led life looks like. And we didn't have any sense of how to hold all that together, right? Like, how does that cohere? And we very rarely engage the arts, much less when we were doing Christology. Right. So what, what I'm doing here that's different from what I knew growing up is in some ways it's more it's more consciously theological i'm trying to show how this claim relates to that claim and why why it matters to say that jesus is one with the father why it matters to say that he's filled with the spirit and so on but also to think about it primarily in dialogue not with biblical text although there's a lot of scripture in this book but not primarily in the language of the bible but in the language of various arts, film or poetry or or literature, and what that means. So here, I'll, I'll say one more thing about that might help. So C.S. Lewis has this wonderful line in which he says, I can't remember which book it's in, but he says anyone, he's warning about apologetics, so it's probably mere Christianity, but <laughs> don't quote me on that. He says you should be very careful with an apologetic that's stating what is already popularly conceived, just using biblical terms. Yeah. Like just, in other words, just taking a a kind of pop notion and fitting biblical terms around (laughs) to sanctify it. Right. Yeah. That's a sign that you don't really understand what you're saying. Right. Like if you really understand what you're saying, you should be able to shift it out of that register into another register and it would still work. Right. And that's essentially what I'm doing here. I'm saying if we, if we were to take our Christological convictions about who Jesus is, what he's done, what his work means for us, what his teachings say to us, if we shifted that into a conversation that's primarily aesthetic, it's primarily about questions of beauty and art. It's primarily engaged with the work of artists, poets and novelists and so on that witness should still be consonant. There should still be resonance between what we would find in that Jesus and what we find in the biblical record, what we find in the right. dogmatic tradition. So right. that's, that's some, and that's why in the big picture, I'm hoping the three books kind of relate to each other in that way. Right. So the rounding out this way of talking about Jesus, but yeah, that I've started with this for that reason. Yeah. And so to some degree, and and then I'll let Father Ken kind of grill you on his thoughts on your book and what you've done. <laughs> but but to some degree, then what you're really saying is the kind of in the most simple way, and this is overly basic, right? But that that beauty and goodness, art, and even the the expressions of art and, and paintings and movies and the like can tell us something there's something there that can actually help us see christ absolutely because that is because the beautiful the good and the true that's just who jesus is i mean another way of saying this is jesus is what makes the beautiful beautiful and the good good and the true true right so anything that's in any way beautiful good or true is about jesus because he's the one who made those things what they are and anything that's false and ugly and diseased or broken is also a witness to Jesus by its lack, right? So it's all, it's all about Jesus <laughs> one way or another. You can't help but talk about Jesus because Jesus is the one who makes reality what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, akin to all truth is God's truth. It's almost to say all beauty is God's beauty, right? hundred percent. That's, yeah. exactly, what That's uh, exactly what I'm saying. Father Ken, take it away. What, what were you thinking? You've read it now. You've engaged with Chris's work. Um, does Chris do it? Does he do it well? And what does it mean for us from your perspective as the reader of his text? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I almost feel like, um, you know, the the one who says uh, he does all things well. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't even need to refute that because literally everyone <laughs> who knows anything about me, they just nearly choked on whatever it is they're drinking. Um, especially when he's got a text in front of him and he's trying to help us understand what it, it means. So we'll narrow the field just a little bit, but the, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. I do think that what Chris is getting at is too, is that, you know, we can get caught up. We can get bogged down in the terminology, right. Of, of, of theology and of, you know, this sort of, you know, um, discourse you know where we have these terms that we all know and use and and translating the figure the person of jesus into another mode of discourse we can't use those you know we have to use different terms and and, and i think a lot of that can lead to abstraction you know we just we end up talking abstractions and i think this aesthetics helps us to particularize right um because there's in some ways you know it's easy to abstract someone who lived two thousand years ago or you know who's embodied in the history before the before the before the nativity embodied in the history of this name that goes back thousands of years and that entire tradition um, it, it's not part of who we are and the, these more contemporary, whether it's music or it's paintings or films or stories, novel, uh, helps us to get a little, cause we have some common experiences, some of these things, hmm. and it brings Jesus into all of that experience. And we can start to experience, which I think is really vital for understanding the Christian understanding of God is to have an experience, right? With experience first, and then you have this discourse about what you experienced, you know? And so right. I, I think the shift from theology to a, uh, improper, which has its place and is a good thing. And, and even though we grew up in circles that didn't appreciate it, we do. That's why we, we do this work that we do. We see the need yep. for that kind of discourse. But in terms of, of helping us to avoid abstraction, these kinds of moves are helpful. And um, because it takes us right into lived experience. And as Chris, you know, launches saw in this book, into the experience, the human experience of time. And what does it mean um, to enter, you know, time um, if you are God? <laughs> and what does it mean for human uh, existence that God has become uh, with us uh, someone who bears and shares and time um, with us and uh, so yeah it's really helpful I think to start to make the connections that sometimes can be hard to make if we're talking we're using the language of the creed or we're using you know the the, the Greek terms and so forth and so on um so yeah yeah i think that what you're saying there several people have asked me you know is this a pentecostal theology like is, is this a pentecostal book right is, is pentecostal mm. theology informing it and i'm assuming that everyone who's asked has been pentecostal saying is no, this one actually, of ours no no oh, okay. not, not everybody right. no no but people who yeah. know me as a pentecostal theologian right are wondering about that and i think the best way to answer that i think i mean I don't necessarily know my own book best, but I would, I think it's that emphasis on experience, like starting with here's how the spirit has shown Jesus to me. Yeah. And working from there, trusting that, like trusting, I, I, you know, some of my most formative experiences as a child, my most mystical experiences as a child were related to art, right. Related to painting one painting in particular, uh, that I, I stumbled into that just, you know, altered me, like fundamentally altered me. And it, it had nothing to do with Jesus in any kind of explicit way. It wasn't thematic right. about Jesus and it wasn't a painting of Jesus, but it was, I believe, an encounter with Jesus, right? Because it was an encounter with the reality, the particular reality that Jesus has made. 
And that, I think those experiences for me, you know, I, I, I don't talk about this in the book. I don't think I can't remember if I did or not, but I think my, my work as a theologian began with two novels. The first one was Moby Dick, which was yeah. an English course. We had to read part of it. We didn't even have to read the whole book. I didn't have to read more than the first few pages. And I realized there's a way of thinking that I'd never, I didn't yeah. know was possible, right? And it's like my mind came awake. And the other was George MacDonald's Lilith, which is a theological book. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a novel, but it's about, it's about the queen of hell and her redemption. And I, I knew when I finished that book, I mean, I read it all in one setting and I knew when I set it down what I was going to do the rest of my life. Right. I mean, it was yeah that kind of shift. So when you, when you think about those, are, those are not the only formative experiences of my life by any means, but those are three major. And those are all, those are all. all aesthetic. Okay. You talked yeah, about the painting, should, you, talked about, you talked about uh, Melville and you, and, and you um, talk about McDonald. And, 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 you know, here, here's the thing, right? God is the guard. I mean, um, I don't want to be cliche, but you know, God is an artist. In fact, he's described yes. as a potter as one of the, one of his um, ways of making is to form uh, clay, right? He, yeah. We, we are, um, we are the clay and he's the potter, but there's a really interesting twist that comes with Jesus and that is that the potter becomes clay that's right um and uh, god makes him you know makes him uh makes an image uh, right of, of his divinity you know in the flesh of uh the son of mary um the, the eternal son of god born uh you know from the father from eternity is is born of the virgin in time you know and so he becomes himself animate clay um god and god and, from god. and just to interrupt here but yeah. this is the stuff that fascinates me right that i think has implications for art but is mostly about worship and that is that god becomes flesh right the potter becomes the pot becomes the clay but not the most spectacular pot right like jesus yeah, yeah. Right. and this this is this is obvious but you need to say it out loud anyway yes I mean, jesus was not the best looking man in his group mm -hmm. right he was not the strongest or the fastest he he was not the brightest intellectually like Jesus, his humanity did like if we were we were gods who were going to become human, like we yeah. would turn all of the dials of our humanity all the way up. Right. Yeah. So sure. We would maximize charm and maximize looks and maximize strength. And and he didn't. And I, I think that's a that's an astounding, obvious, obvious truth, but an astounding one. Right. That he comes among us. And one of the threads that kind of runs through this whole book, and not just this book, anything I say or think, is, is that sense in which the one who is beautiful was not recognized as beautiful. Right? Like, like, he didn't come to us in a way that was unmistakably divine. And that right. that, that right there, that he comes to us in a way that's not unmistakable, that actually is the mark of the divine, right? That God... You know it's God precisely because there's a deferential humility, a playful hiding to it. Like if it's too plain, you know right away that's that's the, that's the angel of God right. pretending yeah. because that's just not how our God works. If, yeah. if I can kind of say two points here, right? I mean, we're coming into the season of Christmas, yep. into this kind of moment of incarnation, right? And it's very akin to this idea of looking at the birth of Christ as the most unspectacular, in fact, least spectacular way of having a birth mm -hmm. right. and right. recognizing humanity through that reality, what, <laughs> what God has for us as creation. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that maybe is kind of like the thread that's coming here and, and you, and you both tell me, I mean, you both tell me what you think about this kind of reality, but such an aesthetic Christology recognizes that to some degree, we have means and ways of engaging with God through the person of Christ in more relatable ways 
than we typically may just have if we're just talking about scripture. And this isn't to say that scripture isn't relatable, but easy for me to say scripture is relatable because I've grown up in this tradition. I've been a part of this tradition. I've spent now a majority of my, I mean, my entire adult life studying it to teach it and to engage with it at conferences and the like. So it's, it's relatable to me in that sense. But for someone outside of the tradition, talking about someone 2000 years ago is a lot less relatable than I, I assume. But to some degree, an aesthetic Christology provides a way into the person of Christ that seems to be much more relatable to a group that may not relate to a text that, that that's that old. Does that sound kind of, I think am I being fair to that? Yeah, I think so. Although I, w- I will say, like, this book is more testimony than it is anything else. In other words, right. this, is, this is written from what happened to me, not so much me trying to translate that to other people. Right, right, right. It does translate, yeah. and I think it will for some, but it was... Uh, you know, written. In other words, I didn't really have a kind of evangelistic purpose. It's just, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think that that may be an implication for sure. But it was more. This is one of the ways in which the Spirit has made Jesus known to me, and I, I think there's a kind of mutual illumination between the theology that I've studied, Scripture, my experiences with art. Like they're they're talking to each other about Jesus, and and I get to overhear it. I mean, I think yeah. that's that's the way that. And and it's it's a it, it, you know this is a this is a God who self limits right, and um, is known in the broken, right, and in the um, the imperfect, right, um, and so this is at all you know sometimes we we're in that mode of theology and it's all glory and it's all you know um it's but this this mode of discord you know experiencing uh christ present in these works of art um helps us to get in touch with the self-limitation of god um and the humility of of god in the the stories and the images and um so because we can forget that there's that discourse of the cross which of course is at the center of all of this self-limiting and humiliation uh, because we're in the theology realm we're just we we can sort of just skip to resurrection or skip to easter you know skip to you know the world that's coming to this world and that glory yeah. but this is the world that we inhabit now and where we need you know the advent of god and where we need christmas and where we need um good friday and um you know holy Saturday and so forth um and just you know i mean it, for people who you know, haven't read the book yet and, and picked it up. You know, one of the themes of the book that we haven't even addressed is that Chris uses the sacred year and the Christian, you know, sacred year as a vehicle for talking about these paintings and novels and stories and passages of scripture and and uh, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, as a journey, right through time. Um, and the story of God taking time with us and his his journey through time as told through that sacred year, which I have found in the past, you know, 15 years of, of my work um, in a local parish, uh, 16 going on 17 years here, is the most effective form of forming disciples in Jesus that sacred year you know yeah. so when you take the sacred year and you combine it with these works of art and you allow Christ to be present and speak to you through all of this which is again about a journey through time that reveals what it means to be God and what it means to be human um, you know there's a lot of learning that can take place yeah, it sounds like you're being it sounds like you're being shot at right now. And I'm I'm gonna I I'm sorry, uh, Arthur. You you uh, my son. We have to stop with the 
that that thank you so it sounds like a scene anyway. out of true detective where somebody's coming down the street with a machine gun i don't know what that was but <laughs> it, I, I was worried my, for your life there for a moment well it, it's to, okay. to this to this point about time it's okay my son my son has some repetitive things that he does at night mm. i'm sorry for making yeah. jokes about it then no 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 it's fine it's fine he's he is uh right he's among us as one as oh absolutely yeah. So. yeah 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 the 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 point I was going to make about, and I, I tried to draw this attention to this in the book. One of the reasons I'm choosing the Christian year is I think the liturgy is kind of the place where aesthetics, theology become one, right? Like it, liturgy is aesthetic, is theology made beautiful. That's the point. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think the the Christian year is a witness to that, you know, beginning with Advent, moving through the, the seasons, as you said, Aaron, I mean, we're, just less than a couple of weeks away from, you know, th- this coming Sunday is in our, in our tradition is Christ the King Sunday, which is a new, relatively new holiday in the church's calendar, but marks like the, the end of the year, right? We've reached the point that Christ is enthroned and immediately the cycle turns yeah. to we begin again. We begin again in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Let me, let me ask a question about kind of what you just said about liturgy uh, being where aesthetics and theology kind of come together, right? Mm. Because, I mean, we all, we, we kind of, you mentioned it at the top of the podcast. We all have come from a Pentecostal background. Yeah. We all now find ourselves, uh, some newer, AKA me in this kind of more liturgical space than, than you two, but you both are in the liturgical space as well. And, and traditions yeah. that are much more liturgically formed. Which is, which is just another kind of one of those strange moves that we do see some, maybe not a large amount, but some Pentecostals kind of moving towards this liturgical space. But, you know, a common thing that I grew up with within a Pentecostal tradition basically said the liturgical church was dead. Mm. Right. Like this was like the, the claim, like liturgy is dead. It's, it's a dead religion. It, that doesn't, whatever it might be. Like if you go there, that's where you lose your faith because no. you just, you know, go and do your confession and then you leave and that's fine. You can go live like hell and then go back on Sunday and confess again. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe help those. Cause I, I can't imagine, I think that we probably all, th- all three of us have heard that growing up in Pentecostal spaces. It was a very common thing. Right. So maybe explain to some degree what you mean when you say that liturgy is kind of where this aesthetics, where the beauty of God comes together with the theology of God. Yeah. And this, this probably should be a conversation unto itself, Aaron. I mean, we should probably talk about this at length. The first thing I'll say is I, I don't, the churches we grew up in, right. were as you said, often critiqued liturgy as dead. You know, the, they would make jokes about the frozen chosen. Yeah. You know, the, the, or, you know, kind of side, side-eyeing movements like Roman Catholics or Anglicans or Methodists or, or Lutherans as um, you know, somehow not serious Christians, right? But the right. fact is, but the fact is that liturgy still had shaped our imagination in ways we never quite owned. In other words, we thought of ourselves as completely free from all of that, but we were still performing most of it. Right. We just didn't know we were. As I said earlier with our doctrine, we didn't <laughs> confess the creed at all. Like we would have thought the creed was Catholic, but we still believe that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And we didn't just get that for ourselves from a reading of the Bible. Like yeah. the tradition had still shaped our imagination, even though we had left it. Right. And the liturgy works the same way. Our churches were deeply liturgical in all in all kinds of ways intentional and unintentional and unwittingly mostly and unknowingly mostly we we did love that liturgy even while we were critiquing it Mm -hmm. we were actually being true to it or trying to be sure and i think the what i think of now is most beautiful about my own pentecostal upbringing the truth is what was best about it is what was truest to the very thing they were critiquing. Hmm. Like the an example of that would be the 
they're they're those old, the early Pentecostals that I, that shaped me were closest to I think the saints and the mystics of the church precisely when they were in prophetic mode about the failures of the church. Yeah, yeah. Right? So they the, the, there's a kind of irony there, right? And I, I see it as a kind of delightful irony, and there's sadness to it too, and that their ignorance left them isolated in ways that I don't want to, I don't want to overlook. Right. But I think in terms of the work of the spirit, they were being, you know, in ways that they could not have known, right. They were being very traditional right at the point at which they were most vehemently denying the tradition. <laughs> right. Right. And I think the exact same truth is, is thing is true of the liturgy that we were, we were absolutely yeah. fundamentally shaped by the liturgy. We just didn't know it. And one of the gifts for me about becoming a theologian, being ordained in a liturgical tradition, is being able to recognize, oh, these are the things that I loved about churches I knew it as a kid, right? Like th- yeah. this is, a- and also, these are the things that I think I can see how that lack of knowing the costs of it, right? So, I think I would start, I would start there with the, we, we need to realize the, the kind of the irony, the playfulness that was at work, even in our denunciations of liturgy and yeah. tradition and doctrine and so on. Father Ken, in, in your reading of the, of the book, you know, what's, what stands out? I mean, formatively to you I mean, and i know that chris as you mentioned wasn't doing an apologetic so to speak as to say this is how all should look at the way in which we engage with who god, who god is through the person of christ but for you as someone who is quite learned who has been doing this for a long time as a practitioner and an academic you know what stood out to you that said, this is something formative to learn from the moment of Chris's engagement in aesthetic Christology. Yeah. So, you know, I'm j- just briefly, I'm, I'm, I'm pastoral theologian, not much of an academic, but the, um, uh, I, 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 again, I want to get back to the dimensionality that a book like this brings to, um, you know, it, it puts you like, I think sometimes our discourse can be two dimensional or one dimensional, but yep. taking Jesus into these experiences of art brings us into multi dimensions, you know, and allows us to see the, the dark side of uh, what it means that you know we inhabit this particular world that we inhabit, and what that meant for for God to also inhabit that dark side, mm-hmm. um, where things are rough places haven't been made a plain yet. You know, um, mountains are still exalted, <laughs> and um, you know there's still thorns. And um, where uh, you know edges that cut us, yeah, and um, and and so to really ponder the what does it mean that divinity has entered this experience as a limited as at no this is just as fully human. You know, which which by it, so we don't have to say so. I mean, to be a human is to be, to 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 surrender to being contingent, to surrender to being, um, you know, not impervious but pervious, right? To to um, surrender to um, chance and to all of these things uh, disease and hunger and thirst and and death, you know all of these things um what does it what does it mean for god and what does it mean for us you know that you know as jensen would say god has a mother and a murderer you know um and uh these stories and these works of art um, and this poetry and, um, 
yeah, help us to do that in a way that I'm not sure we're able to do. I loved what you were saying, you know, Aaron, about, you know, the layers of experience that you've had with scripture and how, and this is the same for Chris and I, we can go back into all of these different moments of our life where these texts or whatever, there's all kinds of things going off in us that, but that's not available to every person who's right. not acquainted with the tradition or with our scriptures or so forth. But many of them are acquainted with these works of, of art, you know, especially the films. And, um, you know, it just takes us into pondering some of these things in a way that I, I don't even think sometimes, unfortunately, a lot of preaching does um, of text, which it should be doing, but doesn't. Um, and a lot of our worship, even the way we perform our worship and the way we um, enact our worship leaves out very, very vital parts of, of what it means to experience uh, the, the, the darkness. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 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 I, that layer, that, that kind of layering, I think that being okay with being limited. I mean, that it's, it's even kind of a topic of the podcast from last week that I had, yeah. uh, in terms of with, with Kelly Capic and talking about kind of you're only human. And again, going back to this personhood, the humanness of Christ as a explanation and story of what humanness means for ourselves, I think is, is really a turn in, in some theological circles that has been lacking and glad we're kind of making that turn. Right. But with that always is going to come the people who are pushing back and, and jokingly, I want to say, for both of you, particularly about Chris, where is Chris a heretic in this in this book? <laughs> and and I say that jokingly, but sadly, as we all kind of know, there are those who would be very much ready to cry a heretic at the drop of a hat. But maybe put it a different way, a question to pose to both of you, where might what Chris has done in this text cause particularly that evangelical white church in america pause to kind of go now wait a second is there anything that comes to mind with what chris is doing either for chris or father ken well i'll jump in and then chris can correct me or go go further or what have you but i i do think that um chris is chris is really careful in this book to we, we talked about the humanity but what what kind of god are we talking about here and if we posit all the things that we do about him you know it's providence um we're not taking anything away from his providence we're not taking anything away from his changelessness um as all these things are classically understood um his his omnipotence and so forth um not cheating on any of those things letting those things have full sway but within this very particular human story and so he's one of the things i think you know chris was constantly coming back around he's, he's, yes there's these human things but what <laughs> this we're talking about someone who's also fully god right going going through all of this and so it has it's both it's teaching he's showing us and again you know in this book chris is using art but he's showing us in all places even in these works of art which are works of human imagination and so therefore you know part of what part of the divine spark of goodness and beauty and truth that there are in these artists um oh, that he's showing us revealing to us in every moment what sort of god we're talking about we're not talking about the sort of gods we project you know, which are like our superheroes in the Marvel comic universe. Yeah. You know, he's not a super, he's not a god like that. Um, and uh, but he, he is very much a human like you. <laughs> right. So, you know, th th there's so many good things. And, and you start to get into some of the, the mysteries of all that. And like, you, you know, you start getting into the grotesque with Flannery or, you, you know, right. <laughs> you get into some of these places where it gets difficult 
to discern and speak. And I think that's one of the things that makes Chris trustworthy as someone who's trying to talk to us. He allows the complexity. He's not trying to like say, Hey, this is simple people. <laughs> like I've got right. this figured out, you know, now it's like, no, it's, you know, the, 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 the grain of truth is kind of along com the, the grain of complexity, you know? And I think so, if I could jump in there, I think, yeah, yeah. One of the things that startled me, Aaron, when I when this book was coming to fruition, is I, I kind of expected not to be allowed to do it, like not to be allowed to write it like this, because I, I think primarily, the, and I don't I don't think there's anything theologically. I mean, the chapter I I, I do a pretty sharp critique of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which some people will find offensive, I'm sure. Um, not me. Critique but, away. Right, but I think the but gives probably, gives Caviezel, you know, some yeah. Christ likeness in the thin red line. But anyway, yeah, 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 right. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't dismiss it out of hand. The movie or or Caviezel's performance. But I I do think that what I'm striving for here is a way of thinking that evangelical white evangelical spirituality in the u.s just doesn't allow like right. kind of and i think that's what father ken is talking about when he talks about like the grain of complexity like we're used to thinking about things in drastic simplicities in fact i think for most of the people that i work with most of the students i've studied with most of the people that i've worshipped with thinking really is just Give me an exaggerated truth. Tell me the exaggerated opposite of that truth. And I'll decide where in the middle I want to fall. And that, yeah. that's what thinking is, right? So tell me, you know, tell me a view on hell. Give me one exaggerated view. Now give me the opposite exaggeration. Yeah. And I'll find some middle ground that I'm personally comfortable with. And I think for most people that I deal with day to day, that's how they've been shaped to think. They think that's what thinking is. Yeah. So if any, and one of the things that does to art, I mean, I, my wife and I are watching Yellowstone, you know, Yellowstone. The, oh yeah. We, we watched the first there. episode and since we can't find anywhere to watch it free. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, know, I mean, it, it's like, or any of our streaming services or whatever. Campy pulp fictiony um, stuff, but it's fun. And Julie and I watch it, but I was thinking about this last night. Like it's kind of any it's it's and not all pop art falls into this categorization, but a lot of pop art is story form that vindicates what our angst is, right? Or or vindicates a grievance that we have, right? So this one is a, is a western. It's you know, it's, a, it's set in the contemporary world, but it's essentially you know a cowboy family who are trying who who won't be forced off their land and they become ciphers for kind of old fashioned morality, like yeah. toughness and masculinity and the new John Wayne almost. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Not, yeah, exactly that. Right. So it's like, we, we can't have Jesus without John Wayne and here's what John Wayne looks like. Right. Right. And there's a chapter, I mean, probably the chapter in this book that I'm personally proudest of, if, if that's even the right word for it is the, chapter on john wayne because i think that's i believe this about the american soul right that we we don't know how to relate to jesus without a john wayne and i don't think we're confusing them this is where i i'm i have a little bit different take than some like dumay's book or uh, kind of popular takes i don't think people are making jesus into john wayne or making john wayne into jesus right i think we've been shaped to think that we need John Wayne for some things and Jesus for other things. Yeah. Yep. We need mm -hmm. John Wayne to deal with the stuff Jesus won't deal with. And we need Jesus to deal with the stuff John Wayne can right. fix after he's done what he can't do. Thus, we need someone like Trump to be president. Exactly. Right. It, it, we, In the yeah, spaces where the CIA, church need to be need, the church. Right. We need torture. We need capital punishment. We need all of these things that we know are not fitted to the Christian life. But, but real world won't work. The real world won't work if we don't do these things. Right. So we need a John Wayne figure who's willing to go to hell for us, willing to be the hell for us on our enemies that 
Jesus can save us from, even the guilt of using John Wayne. Yeah, right. And I, th- I think that a lot of times preaching and ministry, just like pop art, ends up giving us stories that assuage that in us, that put us at ease with being those kinds of people. Hmm. Yeah. But I think our best art, and I, honestly, I think a lot of John Wayne's actual movies trouble all of that. Like I, I talk about it in the in the book, but like the the searchers, the John Wayne movie that I like personally like best. I think it calls all that myth into question. I mean, it, it's hmm. telling you outright, this doesn't work, right? Yeah. But this, you know, this show shows like the Yellowstone that we're watching, like it's just affirming all of our worst instincts, right? It's just telling us exactly what we think we want to hear. Yeah. I think a lot of preaching does that too. So if, if, if I'm successful in anything in the book, I would, I would hope it would be to encourage a kind of thinking, a kind of openness to reality that just, that doesn't allow that to happen. Doesn't, doesn't let a movie or a book or a sermon or a text or a conversation tell you what you already want to hear. Like yeah. there, something else needs to be going on. And what, that, that's the heart for me. That's the heart of it all. Kind of based on what you both have said, right. If, if it's funny, cause if there is one thing in what you both have said, that would cause the church, this moment of pause, maybe of anger or maybe of pushing back is that this is supposed to be simple. Right right like this whole thing is supposed jesus is supposed to be simple i mean the amount of pastors that i had to engage with at my last institution who would say to me something like i don't need theology i just need jesus yeah right i don't know theology i just preach jesus Mm. just kind of shows how much kind of that that certain segment of the pastorate kind of just sees this this thing is supposed to be simple it shouldn't be i shouldn't have to think i shouldn't have to deal in complexities i shouldn't have to push against kind of simple notions i shouldn't have to reflect on where uh where i've i've accepted john wayne as savior in some places and jesus as savior in others right like i don't need any of that i think that's hard for people Yeah, then then you're just living in denial of a large swaths of reality. You know, I mean, you have to live in denial of of large parts of our experience. But that's, I mean, I don't mean this cynically. Yeah, I don't mean this cynically. But I think for a lot, and I I mean, I if I know my heart, and I, I know I don't know it fully, but I. It, it grieves me to think about this, but I, I do think that most of the people in the world that I orbit, faith is that denial. Like that's right. what faith is. Yeah. Like faith is learning how to live in that denial. Yes. Right. Without mm. so you don't lose. Interesting. Your mind. Yeah. Like I think I think there's a there's a way in which we're very much cultivating that. We understand you can't. Mm. This is why I think, like in that particular group, they're absolutely supportive of you know bombing civilians torturing you know they're not particularly troubled about america's past with the natives and with slavery like so like real world horrors they don't right. believe that but they 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 want to listen to christian music not secular music because they, they don't want to hear curse words right i mean it's, it's right. kind of straining at gnats and swallowing camels but now we're talking about evils like they they don't want to hear anybody say the f word but they won't blink an eye at you know torture or right. guantanamo bay or bombing civilians with drones or etc 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 right like and and that and that is because that is at least in part because like we've assumed a way of knowing in the world that needs faith to function to create a certain kind of denial a plausible deniability for the responsibilities of what happens in the world and that it's it's so grievous right i mean it, yeah. it shatters people's lives it absolutely shatters people's lives when you yeah. were talking when you're talking about wayne i was remembering in the experience of reading the book 
you know, the the course I took at ORU with Bill Epperson and the American Wilderness. Hmm. So much of what you were, yeah. that was just one of the favorite courses you used to teach back there. Um, God rest him. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I appreciated the way that you were, um, you know, nuancing that whole thing because uh, there's parts of that that we we welcome into our everyday discourse but there's definitely parts of it we want to keep at bay and i i think the 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 way you were arguing that wilderness is really at the heart of you know what it means to be an american experience um we need to get back to understanding that that particular storyline and trying to uh baptize it you know um with what we know of Jesus so that we can find some healing um, yeah for that part of our experience as a well, nation what what I like here is and and maybe this is another one of those kind of themes that I think we kind of keep going back to on the podcast mm-hmm. or just kind of people that we've engaged with like someone like Brad Jerzak from a few podcasts ago is that we keep finding that the more we re-engage with the person of God, or the person of Christ. And the more that we try to kind of better couch, better take into account all these different things, whether it is scripture and the text or aesthetics and beauty, we're constantly having to reformulate yet again, our picture of God, because of those complexities, because the things that at first seemed so simple to us now have become more complex. And rather than get rid of those things because they are complex, like some might tend towards doing maybe even, and not to kind of categorize deconstruction as all one thing, but as deconstructionists start to have the world kind of open up in these complexities, well, we get rid of the thing that was simple, right? Yeah. But actually, and maybe a byproduct of kind of this conversation in your text, Chris, is to yet again recognize that going back to that person of Christ, looking at Christ through beauty is going to open up a complexity and that's exactly what we need. It's not something to be afraid of. It doesn't also equal deconstruction. It doesn't also equal leaving the church. It doesn't equal those things. It actually yet again shows us who God is in ways that we've been woefully unaware. Yeah, it's truthfulness, right? So being in touch with reality and being in touch with God are inextricably bound up with each other, right? Amen. Reality is not God, but reality is real because of who God is. That's right. right. And you're not going to, you can't deny reality and know God truly. Yeah. And you won't know God truly without seeing reality for what it is, right? Being, being aware of it. So I could read just a bit of this. And, just, and as just Chris question. points out, while he's finding that, that spot at the beginning of this book, it takes courage to paint the Christ, yes. Christ truly for, you know, as he, you know, he's, he was commenting on Malik's a hidden life and the painter and the church in the village church, refreshing the iconography uh, on the walls of the church. You know, he's, he's not painting the true Christ. Right. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, he, he wants to, <laughs> yeah. And, and he knows it's going to take courage to do it, to get to the point where he right. can paint Christ as he really is. Sorry, Chris. Go. No, no, no. That's right. And that, that, I mean, that is the reason that chapter comes first in the book. I mean, because yeah. it's, it's, I think, basic to everything else. It was the first chapter I wrote. And originally, before we ended on the title, All Things Beautiful, Painting a True Christ was the title we were working with yeah. based around that. That doesn't surprise me. Of, you know, it all comes down to the, the courage to paint. Yeah. Mm. And so the, the what I was going to read about, this is from the chapter that i mean there's so many things i'd like to talk about about it but there's i'll i'll skip that for now just the i'm particularly critiquing this john wayne myth right and the myth of the frontier and this chapter is dedicated to the time of the epiphany where where the light comes on about who jesus is yeah this this is he is the one so in all these ways the celebration of epiphany reminds us that christ is is the hope of all who have been left to their suffering the poor, the orphaned, the imprisoned, the impure, the outcast, the diseased. And Christ is the dread of those who have abused their powers and neglected those for whom they are responsible. Christ's story calls into question the coherence and validity of any myth of conquest and domination, including the Enlightenment myth of progress and the American myth of the frontier. 
So at least for those who take his story as revelatory, the truth is unavoidable. However difficult it may be to confront our good, however difficult it may be to confront, our good comes always only through the good we do for others. Like th This is where I, I think the lie is in the American imagination. Our good always only comes through the good we do for others, never from their humiliation or loss. The abundant life God desires for us comes not through predation, predation, but through sacrifice, not through the rout of our enemies or the claiming of their possessions, but through, but through care for them in their need and the sharing of our possessions with them. Yeah. We are called to live not toward the future we imagine for ourselves, but in the present that has actually come to us, not idealizing or whitewashing our past, but seeking the reconciliation and restitution necessary for a full and fully shared flourishing. Yeah. America's mythic heroes, and this is the last bit, are not exactly Christ figures. And this is where I think a lot of pop critique of American evangelicalism goes wrong. It's not that Jesus and John Wayne are identical. It's not that simple. Right. right. It's that our Christ figures are disfigured Christ. So, so back to the point I was saying earlier, we've been taught to think... Mm by moderating opposites. So tell me an extreme here, tell me an extreme there, mm -hmm. and I'll get to decide what middle ground I want for myself. Mm -hmm. Right. So what we want is a Jesus who's sweet and kind and gentle and a John Wayne, mm -hmm. right? Who's badass, right? And who does right. everything that we need done that we don't want to do or don't think we have the guts to do. And then we want to moderate a faith that allows us to have the sweet, meek, and mild Jesus when that's what we need. Right. And to turn from that to the anti-Jesus when we, that's what we need. Yeah. And but what's there's so much about that that's sick. But one of the sick things about it is the people who play John Wayne just have to choose to be damned for us. Yeah. yeah. Like, we scapegoat those people, and these are our soldiers, our police officers, our politicians, our pastors. Like these are the people who do the unspeakable things for us. And then we send them over the Rubicon, and then we forget them. Right? Yeah. We we exile them. We leave them in exile, even though we at, at the price of we praise the work they do. Right? Yeah, we we mourn their exile to some degree as well. And yeah, and and right, that's right. the price, right? The price is they get to be heroes, but they have to live in exile. We get to have the benefit of peace, quote unquote, and prosperity, quote unquote, but we have to lose our heroes. And Jesus is the one who kind of holds us together in that agony. So Jesus is the one who's not able to actually change the way the world works, but he assuages us. He's the distraction. He's the mm. illusion that allows us to stomach how broken the world actually is. And this is why, right. to, to me... So if you tell the story the wrong way, it can seem like the American myth is one of, of kind of heroic domination and victory after victory after victory. But it's not. It's actually deeply tragic. It's that yeah. the John Wayne figure is doomed to exile. And there's nothing Jesus or anyone else could do about that. Right. We now, those of us who want to live a quote unquote normal life, we've got to learn how to know when to, when to turn to John Wayne for John Wayne's work. And when to turn to Jesus for Jesus' work, right? And it, I mean, it's 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 terribly sad, and it's it's right. deeply, it's deeply post-Christian. Like it's Which, a, it's it's grievously. It, it no longer believes in in the power of Jesus, right? Which which to say in maybe a, a more common refrain, right, is Jesus' statement to say, "Love your enemies." Well. We don't want to listen to Jesus in this moment. That's Jesus saying something complete. That, that's not for us. That's for something else. But we actually need to go off to war over here, Absolutely. right? Like we turn we turn away from Jesus to that thing. You know, I think this has been really, really interesting, really engaging. There's so much coming from that text from your from your work, Chris. Um, you and I, we've done work somewhat together. I mean, really me working off of your work, even on my own dissertation for, for Christology and, and why that matters is kind of like, how do we keep thinking about the person of Christ and how we engage with the person of Christ? But, you know, I, I would really encourage anyone to not be afraid of any kind of academic vernacular we may have used here, because that's not the text, right? Yeah, and to engage with this to, to yet again, 
rethink the way that we think about Christ, but it's particularly through beauty and art and kind of through Chris's story of that engagement. Uh, Father Ken, thank you so much for joining and for giving us some of your thoughts, uh, wonderful thoughts and helpful thoughts in, in Chris's book. We appreciate it. Yeah, my, my privilege. And, um, you know, uh, I, whether they're his colleagues or students, my experience was these are students of Chris's that have really made my life the last decade beautiful and have helped me to think about Jesus. And I, I just wrote out their name, Christopher Brewer. I don't know, this might be a colleague of his, Preston Sharp, Jacob Manley, Phil Harris, Daniel Larson, Ethan Spivey, Matt Smith, and Josiah Augustine. Um, anyway, I'm grateful for Chris and the way that he has instilled so much in them and that has been, you know, that's been life to me. Um, for people who want to read for me the passage in this book that really just sums everything up is the bottom of page 35 to the very top of page 37 and um in chris's chapter on christmas um where he quotes jesus um uh the, the hour which is a big thing for chris the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified on through chris's description of what it means and he's interacting with Ronner and, and there and i some of it I'm not sure how much of it's a um, a recapitulation of, of Ronner, but man, is it beautiful! And um, so, if you're uh, if you're kind of surfing, you want to see, you know, whether you want to want buy the whole book. Um, I, I would I would read the whole passage if I yeah. if we had time, but it's um, you take about two minutes to read it. But that's where I'd go and look at that, and you'd see what what Aaron is saying. It's not this is not a, a difficult read in that theological sense so yeah I mean, the one line i'll draw attention to there is right after the footnote right from the bottom of page 36 uh, in spite beautiful. of everything yes and without ignoring anything hmm. we can live at peace with temporality striving to love as we have been loved pondering in our hearts the mystery of his life which ends as ours must in death confident that all things past future or present can be made beautiful because time is Christ's and we are Christ's and Christ is God's. And that, that is, I mean, you, you put your finger on, I mean, that's what the book is about, right? In spite of everything, ignoring nothing, right? Like that. And that's, that's that point about illusion. We've just been circling around, right? Like you don't have to ignore anything, no pain, no loss, no catastrophe, no tragedy, turn it all over to God. And I think that's, it's that's the all things in the all things beautiful hey. yeah, it, it, it just blew my mind as i read it the second time and i, I was like yeah i gotta and you that's really that summation after you recapitulate Ronner is just amazing all things beautiful instead of christology i'm going to do it because chris won't baylor university press <laughs> check it out people i think it's on amazon in all places right yes. yeah. uh amen and amen and as we've we're all pentecostally heritage bound yeah we've had the false endings but here's the true ending. yes yes thanks so much for being with us and we will uh we'll be back with you at least chris and i will be back with you next week thanks again ken that's that's a great call right there perfect exactly we none of us can shut up